Right, good evening, Saints. Uh, good to be here. Good to have the Word of God uh, to uh, to consider in these uh, in these moments before us. Let's turn to Second Thessalonians, please. Um, in chapter two. And we'll read um, a few verses we're going to concentrate and teach as instructed, I think, um, from verse 13 to the end. But we'll um, just notice a couple of, of things on the way through. Notice uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 2 that the, the statement in verse 2 of, of the chapter, Paul says that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is at hand or is present. Uh, Now coming down, you'll notice that uh, in verse 10, Paul describes those that perish because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And notice verse 12, he speaks about those that are damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And notice the link between not believing the truth and not living well. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, or God has as first fruits chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and has given us everlasting or eternal consolation or comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work or good word and work or every good work and word. And we're thankful to God for his good word before us uh, today. Now you've uh, been going through these Thessalonian epistles, uh, I think. Uh, And you'll come to be quite fond of these Christians, I would think. Because it's hard to read of their conversion in the book of the Acts. And their passionate and well-known love of the truth and their devotion to it without feeling something of the desire to be a little bit fresher in your Christian life. They had problems, pretty serious problems. Uh, that's why these letters, of course, are, are, are teaching them and instructing them. But, but the issue of their faith and of their love uh, among the Christians is so clear and it stands out. But the big issue, of course, we have right before us here is this issue of being shaken or troubled. Because believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who were getting on well in so many ways were in difficulty. Now what happened is 
that, that circumstances or events and teachings had come alongside to destabilize them. They were experiencing persecution. In fact, verse 4 of chapter 1 describes all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Many verses, of course, both in the Acts and in the Epistles, tell us that they had a pretty rough time. But also there was clearly teaching, uh, probably by some sort of false prophetic word. In verse 2, a spirit uh, had been involved and a word and a false letter teaching them about, uh, about wrong doctrine. And so you had this issue of circumstances and teaching, e- events and, and instructions that, that knocked them off course. Right, let's stop for a second. That still happens today. Right, Good Christians who are doing well get knocked off by circumstances and by teaching. So when we come to the word of God and deal with the specifics of this passage, we need to recognize that where these people are is where we could be. You know, when things are fine and the sun is in the sky and you can see it and there's no real issues in life, It's quite different from when a wave crashes or when all the certainties of your life just disappear and how many believers have been found in that situation and events they never expected and difficulties they'd never faced before suddenly hit them and they got destabilized. Or they stumbled across teacher. Maybe they listened to something, heard something, read something, or would you believe it, saw a YouTube channel on something that knocked them off course. By the way, it happens all the time. And they were fine. They were doing okay. But then false doctrine came in. Something that was erroneous came in. And destabilize them. Every single one of us is quite prone to these two issues. And so we face the same issues, the same difficulties. If we're spiritual, good, so were them, these saints. If you're sincere in your Christian life, good, they were too. And yet they were facing real difficulties. And the great danger was this, that they would start to behave badly. See, that's what happens, okay? See, end of chapter 1, the desire of Paul is that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in them, that the pleasure of his, the good pleasure of his goodness, verse 11, and the work of faith with power would be worked out in their life, that there would be a glorification of Christ in how they live. Notice the end of chapter 2. Every good word and work. This is the key thing. It's not just that the Christians would be stabilized. That is Paul's aim. But the aim is not just to like, you know, just just get the ship steady and that's it. The point is to have the saints grounded and stable so that they might live well. So that Christ might be glorified. Because saints that are unstable don't speak right and live right. I say that on the authority of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, what's the answer? 
if we need if we need to be stable to live well for God, what's the answer? Well, the answer's the answer's doctrine. There you go. I don't know if you're looking for a more exciting answer. I hope the door's locked. No one's leaving. The answer's doctrine. And what Paul does is give them teaching. You know, you know there are many lovely aspects of Christian life, aren't there? You know, there's, there's few things nicer than with God's people singing and enjoying something of, uh, of the delights of praise to the Lord. There's something lovely about Christian fellowship. There's all sorts of parts of Christian life that are great. But what stabilizes you and keeps you is not, is not really those things. It's doctrine. That flows out in, of course, these things. But, but it's doctrine. So that's why last week I think, I think Boya landed, landed with a whole lot of eschatology on you. Because that's what Paul did with them. They need to understand the theology of the future, of the eschaton, the end. And so he gave them a big slug of teaching about the man of lawlessness and all the rest of it. And, uh, and there you go, boom, you've got some doctrine about the future landed. Well, you've had eschatology. What we're doing tonight is a bit of soteriology. It's talking about salvation. Because they not only need to know about the future, but they need to know about, about their future and actually where their future came from. What their salvation was all about. Uh, and we're about to go through some truth that should be stabilizing for God's people. It's the kind of truth you put your, your feet on and you stand you might not understand, but you stand, and that's where we're going tonight. So, so really, uh, kind of simple outline in lots of ways. Verse thirteen and fourteen of our, our section really is all about appreciation. It's appreciating what God has done, and uh, and we've got a, a whole set of verses about God's activity for us and what He's done. Uh, I, I'm going to put across this the fact that we need to recognize the work of God. All right? That's what verse 13 and 14 is saying. We need to recognize the work of God. Uh, and then in verse 15, uh, we've got an exhortation. And it's when you get into these imperative verbs, you get things that you have to do. Uh, and, and so I'm going to call this that we need to respond to the work of God. God has has done something, and the cry and the call of the passage is this, that you have to respond to that. And then we come to verse 16 and 17, which is uh, a prayer of Paul. And what we're being taught is that we need to rely on the work of God, because it goes on and it continues, and we can't do it ourselves. Uh, and this is the, the whole tone of Paul's teaching in the last two verses. Okay, So, so we've got truth to recognize, we've got appreciation, then we've got a bit of exhortation. Um, and then at the end we've got a bit of expectation because God is going to do something for them, Paul says. If you rely on him, he will give you comfort and stability, which is where we're going to end the meeting whenever, whenever that is. Right, first of all, in verse 13 and 14, we need to recognize the work of God. And immediately we find there is a contrast in verse 13, but. Paul has been teaching them about the, the future and, uh, and a very crystallizing time in the future where there will be a, a set of events and 
a climactic decision that will be made by untold billions, I don't know how many. And the truth will have been presented to them, but they will not have it. And you see the language, the contrast in verse 12. You have the fact that these people that are being referred to believe not the truth. But, verse 13, in their experience there had been belief of the truth. People didn't believe, but, Paul says, you believe the truth. In verse 12, notice the language is that those that didn't believe the truth were damned. Those that believe not the truth. Yet in verse 13 notice that the word is linked with these people, with these Christians. But you've been chosen to salvation. Not damned but saved. No belief, belief. Damnation, salvation. Again look at verse 10. The language of those that have been deceived is perishing. Because they receive not the love of truth. That they might be saved. They'll perish. There's the language of verse 14. Look at the climax of verse 14. Paul says, but for you it's glory. That's the word. We'll come back to that. You get the idea. There's a contrast. You're in a totally different place, people. Like it could be no different. It could be the difference could be no greater, right? It's just massive. You are in a totally different place. And that contrast leads to a compulsion. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren. Paul says, when I look at you and your position and where you are and who you are, I can do nothing else but give thanks. Here's a question. Do you feel that? I mean, you might give thanks. I hope, I hope at least once a week. I'd be nice to think if it was every day. We give thanks to God for salvation. But do you have to drag it out of your spirit? You know, deep down. <laughs> and kind of pull it up. Or do you feel the weight of that? We are bound. It's a duty word. You ought to. Paul says there's no choice. When I see how different your position is from those that don't believe. He says I'm bound to give thanks. Um, now it's, it's to God notice. <laughs> We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Uh, And here they are. They are in that position of being brethren and loved of the Lord. You know, like that little clause there is when you've come out of the verses we've just or you've just gone through, right? What a safe place that is, isn't it? You know, you come down these verses and you've got deceivableness and you've got perishing and you've got wickedness and you've got unbelief. And then you come into this, you're part of the brethren, loved of the Lord. (laughs) you're in the family and he loves you now notice that this is is the one who's going to destroy them verse 8 the Lord is going to consume them with the spirit of his mouth the brightness of his coming when he gloriously annihilates the wicked 
That Lord loves you. <laughs> what a place. What a place to be. We'll think about his glory in not very long. But but maybe just think about it now for a second. You know, if you could only see him. It's on the throne now. A man sitting where only God can sit. Omnipotent. We've sung of the omnipotence of God and of his glory. And yet, he loves you. Like, take that home, alright? Now you say, right, okay, um, we're giving thanks for the man on the throne, the Lord exalted who loves us. And God's to be given thanks. Now we're going to learn something about the work of God. God's saving work. And we've got some soteriology, some salvation theology, some truth about salvation. And, and uh, there are four things I want to think about. Uh, this whole work of God is summed up in two words, I guess. It's the word choice in verse 13. God hath chosen you. And verse 14, he has called you. All right, So, so he has chosen you and he has called you. And, and this is the ground and this is the, the, the words that surround the truth that we're going to teach in these two verses. Um, four things. I want to think about the essence of God's saving work. And then the elements of it. And then the effecting of it. And then the end of it. So, so let's just... Fold down these verses with these four headings. We're thinking about the essence of God's saving work. First of all, uh, first of all, it's God's it's God's work. <laughs> it's God's work. Salvation is God's. Now, immediately we're we're given this understanding because the. The work of God is stamped with his particular activity. It is a work that is, in fact, the essence is that it's his work. It's a Trinitarian work. Notice notice that God is there in verse 13. The Lord is there. The Spirit, sanctifying of the Spirit, verse 13. And the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a Trinitarian work of God. And it's a work of God that's particularly for himself. Now, uh, without getting too technical, um, although I did promise you this was doctrine, uh, the, the structure of the verbs here is, is in the middle voice. The, the idea being that this is an action of God that particularly has his interests in mind. In other words, he is moving for himself. It, it's from himself... And it is for himself, first of all. You're in the place of being loved of the Lord and of being saved. But God did it, and God did it for himself. Alright? The essence of salvation is God's work. Now, there's a deliberate contrast here that you have to notice. You see, this is, this is election truth. This is God has chosen you. And... You can easily uh, get into those words, and people get very excited these days in this whole language. So let me, let me just reassure you, what I'm about to teach you is orthodox, historic church teaching, and if you want to bring it into the last couple of centuries, it's orthodox assembly teaching as well. All right. So don't get too excited, whether you agree with it or not. It's extremely orthodox. Would I be anything else? 
And the Bible teaches when it comes to salvation that my salvation is the result of God's eternal choice. And that emphasis on the sovereign act of God is in this passage. And you will notice that it's when he comes to describe their salvation that he wants them to get hold of this. There's a deliberate contrast when you're comparing those that are damned in the previous verses. There's this constant emphasis on the fact that they believe not the truth. They believe not the truth. And the Bible presents these things. That God is sovereign in salvation and yet man is responsible. And they sit side by side. Always side by side in the Bible, by the way. If you don't see them side by side, you've just missed one of them. Because they're both there. Always. And you have this teaching that when it comes to those that are lost, they did not believe the truth. The truth was presented. It was genuinely presented. They did not love it. And they did not want it. However, when it comes to salvation, the emphasis is on the other way around. It's on God that chose. We'll find in verse 13 that there is belief of the truth as well. But it always starts with God. And so when you think principally about your salvation, you're thinking about the fact that God has done something for himself in an action of the Trinity to bring you to him. He has a mighty thing, isn't it? I don't know how often you think about that. Your little life. Maybe you don't think about it too much because you're not getting beaten up and kicked around the place. Maybe it doesn't mean as much to us as it should because we don't face the destabilizing that these folks were facing. But they're faced with the truth that the essence of God's work is that He has acted in salvation to choose you for salvation to himself. Notice the, the language in some of your verses it will be from the beginning. It's probably as first fruits he has chosen you to salvation. Uh, and uh, and then you have this idea of the first fruits. Now, again, there are there are two ideas with first fruits. Of course of course you, you may well have been taught rightly that that the first fruits is the, the first part of the harvest and the rest is coming. All right? so, and that's part of the word in lots of places. An idea is that there's this promise of a future harvest. That there's you know, the very first ripened harvest and then the rest is coming. And that, that's true. It may well be part of what's here. These are the first people saved in Thessalonica. It may well be that he's thinking about those that are, are going to come on behind. But, but actually in lots of places, when the idea of the first fruit is mentioned, the key point is this, that it's that which is particularly God's. Belongs to him. So that was the idea of the first fruit, that they took part of the harvest, and it was the Lord's. It was particularly his. There is no explanation for it, and there is no basis for it in morality or value that we can understand. But God loves you, and you're his particular portion. And I say again, you're maybe not meant to understand it, but you're meant to stand on it. Because the Bible says it's true. This is the authoritative word of God, and he says it's true. The essence of the saving work of God. And, 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 and just like in... In Romans chapter 9, 
where there is a, a distinction between those that have fitted themselves to destruction, they believe not the truth, and yet those that have been chosen as vessels of mercy, that's where you are. And may God be praised. Now, that's the essence of God's saving work. But secondly, we have the elements of God's saving work, because there are two aspects of it in terms of activity that come at the end of verse 13. You have the, the, the elements of the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And, and here we have it now starting to be worked out in a bigger picture. We have this setting apart work of the Spirit of God, such that, that ever before you came to Christ and ever before you were saved, there was a work of God involved. The active, sanctifying, setting apart activity of God the Spirit. Now that continues after salvation, but it was operative in the working out of God's choice. God chose you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. The salvation that is yours, now of course he's thinking in the broadest terms of salvation, because he's thinking about not only salvation from sin, but ultimate salvation from wrath, which is the direct context. It's the fullness of salvation in view, and the Spirit set them apart in that issue. And and of course it's linked then with belief of the truth, because you actually believe. In your experience, you believe. Please be clear that the choice of God and salvation does not negate the responsibility of man or the reality of belief. Because the Bible says that's true as well. There's a great danger in this whole area that we like one of these truths more than the other and we end up hanging everything on one and not the other. Okay, Leave the Bible to say what the Bible says. Be very careful to make sure we let it say what it says. The preaching of the gospel is real. The offer of the gospel is real. The belief of the truth of the gospel is real. And the choice of God's salvation is real. Maybe when we've got a bigger brain and a bigger heart and a bigger spirit, we might understand how they link together. But maybe not. That that's okay. You know... um, I do wonder sometimes why I better not get like, too sidetracked, spend all our time here. But I do wonder, you know, th- these are things that we understand in lots of ways and we leave them there. You know, uh, in, uh, in this country and many others, we have elections now and again. Millions of people express their will. And yet the result is ordained by God. Do you understand this? How that works? Do you understand how praying works? And how the will of God in its various aspects interacts with your expressed will in prayer? We're in the realm of mystery. Not in the biblical sense, but in the, in the English sense. But the fact that we don't fully understand it, the point here is it's truth to stand on. And in the, in the destabilizing experience of life, Paul says, listen, you're loved, you were chosen to be saved by a work of the Spirit and through belief of the truth. 
Now the effecting of God's saving work is found in verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. Paul says, go back to Acts 17. Well, he didn't think about his Acts 17 because they weren't chapters. But he was thinking about Acts 17 and what happened there. That, that when he came and preached the gospel, there was an effective call of God in their life. And you're in the, the line of Romans chapter 8 that is difficult to get out of. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And those foreknown and predestined were called. And justified and glorified. And not one is lost from the start, foreknowledge, right through to the glorified. Doesn't seem as if one's added either. It's just the way it is. Aren't you thankful for the day you were called? Um, One of our older men in in Riverside has a lovely phrase. He uses it many Sunday mornings. Um, He thanks God for opening his sin-blinded eyes. Uh, And um, that's what it means to be called. The effecting of God's saving work. But finally, look at the climax, the the end of God's saving work. It's unto the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Unto the possessing, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The outshining excellence of our Lord. Wow. Right, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. You know, you know, if he comes tonight, it's in the heart of the Lord. John 17 makes it clear. It's, it's in the heart of the Lord that when he takes us to the Father's house, he comes for his bride. When he takes us to the Father's house, one of the, the, the first things and one of the key things that we're going to be taken up with is beholding his glory. Now, now that glory is going to break on a world... The glory of Christ will be manifested in this sinful realm, in millennial glory. The glory of the Lord will will shine forever in the new earth. We're going to see it. It would be enough to see it, wouldn't it? Just to see it. But that's not what verse 14 says. We're going to possess it. Listen, the work of God in salvation would have been just, you know, well and truly enough. Just to take sin away. (laughs) And, And just to make us right. But God's going to make us glorious. Because we're going to be conformed to the image of His Son. Possessors of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can hardly understand what that means because we hardly grasp what the glory is. Now, with that in context, he says, we are bound to give thanks. You know, when, when Paul tells them, remember this, okay, <laughs> uh, Paul isn't just giving them a little bit of insight into his prayer life, you understand, right? He's a teacher, you know. Some of you are, some of you know teachers, some of you are married to teachers. 
they're always teaching. <laughs> so when they're saying stuff, there's teaching going on. That's what's happening here. He's not just telling them that he has a duty to give thanks. He's, he's, it's kind of hint, hint, you have too. Right, that's the point. Uh, take those verses home. Those are verses to meditate on. You know, the lost art of Christian meditation. But we're too busy to move on. And we're too quick to say, well, we've, that's good, we've got something, move on. Stop and read those verses and repeat them. Read them in different translations. Roll them around in your head and let them go down into your soul. Because that's what was meant to happen with them. We need to recognize the work of God. Open your eyes, people. You're just not just saved because you heard the gospel and you believed. You're certainly not saved because you were better than somebody else and you were more prone to believe and you had a more yielding spirit. You're a little bit less dead and a little bit better. <laughs> right? That's not the case. You're saved because of the work of God and praise his name. We need to respond. He says, therefore. There you go. Not just enough to uh, sit, sit and bathe in the light of verse 13 and 14 and say hallelujah, although that's good. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the instructions, the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And you have these imperatives come in. You must. Now, given what God has done, what he has done and where he's taking you to, how it started and where it's ending, given that, you must stand fast. And you must hold the instructions you've been taught. Now, he says, you're being destabilized and knocked off course. Now, stop it. Don't let anyone agitate you. Anyone trouble you, stand. Now, now this whole standing, and you see it, the stabilizing word, it comes back, the whole idea in verse 17 is, is, is kind of similar, we'll get there, it comes in a bit of a, in a bit of a flow. You know, we need doctrine to be able to stand, to be able to be firm. And that's why it says hold the instructions, see this is not... Well, we see traditions and people get very excited uh, about traditions because traditions are bad. By the way, they're not always bad. You know, um, that is actually a cultural issue we have. You, I know, I know, you're not affected by culture. No one's affected by culture, right? You're, you're the only one. Everyone else is, but you're the only one that's outside of culture. You're not swimming in it at all. You can see it all clearly. <laughs> we're all affected by our culture and of course the, the whole postmodern uh, idea of, of throwing and, 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 and throwing down everything and all structures etc kicks against all tradition right okay uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton I know he was Catholic but he was wise as well uh, who, who said you know when a fence has been put up always ask the question why before you take it down Some traditions are good, alright? So, so don't just tear them down because they're not, you know, thou shalt in the Bible. If there's things that have been done for a long time, there might be a good reason for them, potentially. You go and check it out first. 
But that's not what this is. This is, instru- this is the handed down things. Qu- quite clearly, it's from his preaching and his writing, whether by word or our epistle. What he's saying is, of course, this is the words of the apostles. So it's the apostles' doctrine. It's the teaching. You want to put it in the context here. For us, it's the Bible. All right. So, so what he's saying is, you have to hold fast to the Bible. He says, you, you, you stand firm... Because you are gripped sovereignly by God and salvation and being hurried on to glory, right? Then, then, then put your feet down, get stable, and hold on to the Bible and don't let anyone knock you off course. Right? Right, how are you getting on with holding on to the Bible? You need this book. We need this book to be able to stand. If there were to be an unfolding of persecution in the United Kingdom in the next 10-15 years. Not at all improbable. You'll only stand if you're grounded in this. Now it's serious. It's quite possible in this generation that people in this room could shame the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ by things they accept and allow and affirm and shy away from standing up for. Because they never held on to this. It's a big risk for all of us. And just because the path's been a bit more rosy for us to now than perhaps it will be in the future, doesn't, well, you know, there's time to fix the roof when the sun is shining. Because the storm may well be coming. Hold fast. Get into the Bible. Get hold of the word of God. Paul's saying, I taught you this and I wrote this. And as a sent one of Christ, an apostle, speaking as from the Lord directly, hold fast the instructions, the handed down things. Get a grip of them and don't let them go. Now, verse 16 and 17, quickly. um, The expectation. He says, now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God even our Father which hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace comfort your hearts now he's praying this is one of these prayer wish instructions he he is showing them how to pray Uh, and he's making it clear that not only do they have to recognise the work of God and respond to the work of God but but as they do so they have to rely on the work of God because it goes on See, the, the whole structure is of dependence upon the Lord. But you're relying on Him. You can't be stable and encouraged in heart without Him. It's based on the Scriptures, but it's, it's not just, you know, um, Christianity isn't just getting, those, getting the, the, the pins in, you know, and just hunkering down with your head against... The, uh, the the storm it's not just like taking hold of stuff that people have done forever and saying well that'll do I'll hold up to this and I'll never change it's not the idea of even just grasping on to truth it's grasping on to truth 
in the power of and through relationship with an independence upon the Lord. It is a living... You see, see, theology... Christian life is theology lived out. It's the living out of theology. It is the practical daily living out of what you believe in relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and God, even the Father. And so he's praying. Now you will notice that that he's, he, and this is quite staggering, if you, if you didn't believe in the deity of Christ, you'd have a problem with verse 16, but no one here has got a problem with verse 16, I'm sure. Uh, this is one of those verses that there's many of them in the New Testament where it would be impossible to think of anyone who's not equal with God being in the verse like this. Because you have statements about the love and the giving of the Lord Jesus and the Father together. Uh, verbs that describe action that are linked directly with two people equated together. And it's, it's impossible, apart from those that are equal, to be in the same clause. And the emphasis is himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father has loved us and has given us. Himself. You get the emphasis again? Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's him. And God the Father has loved us. And given. Those two things go together. You know that, hand in hand. Uh, I think it was last... Wednesday, Sinclair was through um, with us and was preaching on one verse in this passage actually, uh, and, and on verse 16, and, uh, and he said um, and he said that you can, you can give without loving but you can't love without giving, and I think that's good to take away as a summary, I think it was him who said that, it's not, I've ascribed it to him, but it's true we're loved by God and we've been given And the love of God gives, and what's, it, what's that love given us? Everlasting comfort, good hope through grace. Undeserved giving of everlasting comfort and good hope. Now he's saying, look, he's, he's praying, it's, a, it's, it's this, this ascribing and relying upon the Lord to provide what we need in verse 17, but he says you, you can turn to him and look to him for this, because here's what he's done. He has loved us, and he has given us everlasting comfort and good hope. He's given us encouragement forever. He's given us the ability to face everything forever encouraged or comforted or strengthened. Now let me just break that down for a minute because the word comfort is there in verse 16 and verse 17. Uh, It's the the key idea of verse 17, comfort your hearts, and the idea of comfort or consolation in verse 16 that's eternal. Now, um, I read somewhere at one point, uh, someone who said this, that the word comfort in English has gone soft. And it has. Right? I don't know, you think about comfort or encouragement, what do you think about, you know, encouragement? You think about somebody giving you a cuddle or a, a I don't know, comfort. I always think about, uh, I often use, use this in teaching when I come across this word, comfort immediately in my head I think about fluffy towels and a Lenore bottle dumping on top, or it's not Lenore, it's the other one, dumping on top of the 
of the springy towels. Because it's comfort. Okay, that's what I think about comfort. So the word comfort in English has gone soft. It has. That's not what the word means. Okay, so you think this is a cuddly blanket and a big hug. That's not what it is. Right? Just even in English, look at the, the, the background. Encouragement. What's in that word? Courage. Comfort. What's in that word? Fort. Right? You get the idea. In the English words, comfort and encouragement is the idea of strength. It's the idea of backbone and of strength and fortification. It's the idea that God has given us the ability to face anything. Right? Face anything. Eternal encouragement. What do we need from God? We need strength. Backbone. That's the word. The word establish is also stabilize. Sterizo. It's it's the word we get steroids from. It's the idea of giving some strength to something, right? You know, when you want to pump something along, give us some steroids. Apparently, that's the idea. Strength. Backbone, fortitude, and strength. That's what Christians need. When the waves are crashing and when the persecution is coming and when there's false teaching and people claiming to have spirits that they don't have uh, and saying stuff that's absolutely wrong. See what you need. Backbone, fortification, strength from God. God has given us eternal comfort, encouragement and good hope. He's given us hope that is beneficial and blessed forever. He says, now him you can lean on for comfort in your heart and stabilizing, strengthening. Comfort in your hearts. Notice, it's in the heart. It's in the center of your will and decision making. It's, it's, it's a stabilizing force. It's a fortification of your whole central system of decision making values and the will. I will stand and I will not yield and I'll not move because God has given me the ability and you get the idea now you need all of that if you're going to do verse 17 every good word and work you say really? (laughs) yep really doing right and speaking right is really hard I'm reading through Matthew recently and um, impressed with just how difficult it is really to do righteousness. To live right, to do right. Now, of course, we can be Pharisaical, just load, <laughs> pull the bar down so we can get over it, okay? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's what we tend to do. Just, just, just lower the, the bar of rights. Just listen to the Lord, right? Listen to Him and watch Him. And see how high the bar is. Every good work and word. In the language of verse 11 of chapter 1. To do, fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. And the work of faith with power. Is really hard. You need to be living in the good of salvation. You need to be moved by it and changed by it. And living in the daily strengthening power. Of the Lord himself that loves us and our God and Father. And it's the only way. A lot of that's Christian 101, right? Most you didn't learn much tonight. But you've been reminded of all sorts, and so have I. 
The reason why it matters that we we live well, our works and our words are right, is because it's the glory of Christ. Chapter 1. It's glorifying him. He deserves it. We will one day, absolutely certainly, be the cause of glory being brought to him. Chapter 1 tells us that. He will be admired in all them that believe. But Paul wants to go better than just to stop these folks from falling over. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we would go. You know, it's an emergency, emergency letter. You know, like, like break, 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 stop them going off the cliff. No, not good enough. Paul wants them to live to the glory of Christ. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, his, his aims are always far higher than ours. May the Lord help us to dwell in the joy of his salvation and to live for his glory. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we give thanks for the word of God tonight and and we've been reminded that we are the subjects of eternal sovereign salvation work. Our God, humble us with that truth we pray. And may we go tonight rejoicing in it and delighting in it. The Lord himself has loved us. We give thanks for Christ and we give thanks for Calvary. We give thanks for eternal purpose and we bless thee for help that we need for today that is available. Help us to cling close to thee, we pray, as we give thanks for our time together in the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen.